0: Have you ever noticed how, when speaking of God as being sovereign, many a professing believer will have no problem with what you say? It sounds right. God is king. He is on the throne. But when we speak of God as being sovereign in salvation, suddenly there is tension. Welcome to episode 46 of Ask Spurgeon, where we pose another important question to the great Victorian preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon and draw yet again an answer from his ministry at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. I'm your host, Dave Holt. Reverend Spurgeon, why is it that many believers will be happy to accept God's sovereignty except in matters of salvation? My friends, indeed, it is at this point that there will be a large number who will go from us because they cannot receive our doctrine. When we apply this truth regarding the divine sovereignty to man's salvation, then we find men standing up to defend their poor fellow creatures, whom they conceive to be injured by God's predestination. But I never heard of men standing up for the devil. And yet, if any of God's creatures have a right to complain of his dealings, it is the fallen angels. For their sin, they were hurled from heaven at once, and we read not that any message of mercy was ever sent to them. Once cast out, their doom was sealed, while men were reprieved, redemption sent into their world, and a large number of them chosen to eternal life. Why not quarrel with sovereignty in the one case— as well as the other. We say that God has elected a people out of the human race, and his right to do this is denied. But I ask, why not equally dispute the fact that God has chosen men and not fallen angels, or his justice in such a choice? If salvation is a matter of right, surely the angels had as much claim to mercy as men, Were they not seated in more than equal dignity? Did they sin more? We think not. Adam's sin was so willful and complete that we cannot suppose a greater sin than that which he committed. Would not the angels who were thrust out of heaven have been of greater service to their Maker if restored than we can ever be? Had we been the judges in this matter, we might have given deliverance to angels but not to men." Admire, then, divine sovereignty and love, that whereas the angels were broken into shivers, God has raised an elect number of the race of men to set them among princes through the merits of Jesus Christ our Lord. Note again the divine sovereignty in that God chose the Israelite race and left the Gentiles for years in darkness. Why was Israel instructed and saved, while Syria was left to perish in idolatry? Was the one race purer in its origin and better in its character than the other? Did not the Israelites take unto themselves false gods a thousand times and provoke the true God to anger and loathing? Why then should they be favored above their fellows?' Why did the sun of heaven shine upon them while all around the nations were left in darkness and were sinking into hell by myriads? Why? The only answer that can be given is this, that God is a sovereign and will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy, and whom he wills he hardens. So now also. Why is it that God has sent His word to us, while a multitude of people are still without His word? Why do we each come up to God's tabernacle, Sunday after Sunday, privileged to listen to the voice of the minister of Jesus, while other nations have not been visited thereby? Could not God have caused the light to shine in the darkness there as well as here? Could not he, if he had pleased, have sent forth messengers swift as the light to proclaim his gospel over the whole earth? He could have done it if he would. Since we know that he has not done it, we bow in meekness, confessing his right to do as he wills with his own. But let me drive the doctrine home once more. Behold how God displays His sovereignty in this fact, that out of the same congregation those who hear the same minister and listen to the same truth, one is taken and the other left. Why is it that one of my hearers shall sit in yonder pew and her sister by her side, and yet the effect of the preaching shall be different upon each? They have been nursed on the same knee, rocked in the same cradle, educated under the same auspices. They hear the same minister, with the same attention. Why is it that the one shall be saved and the other left? Far be it for us to weave any excuse for the man who is damned. We know of none. But also, far be it for us to take glory from God. We assert that God makes the difference, that the saved sister will not have to thank herself, but her God. There shall even be two men given to drunkenness. Some word spoken shall pierce one of them through, but the other shall sit unmoved, although they shall, in all respects, be equally the same both in constitution and education. What is the reason? You will reply, because the one accepts and the other rejects the message of the gospel. But must you not come back to the question, who made the one accept it and who made the other reject it? I dare you to say that the man made himself to differ. You must admit in your conscience that it is God alone to whom this power belongs. But those who dislike this doctrine are, nevertheless, up in arms against us, and they say, How can God justly make such a difference between the members of his family? Suppose a father should have a certain number of children, and he should give to one all his favors and consign the others to misery. Should we not say that he was a very unkind and cruel father? I answer, yes. But the cases are not the same. You have not a father to deal with, but a judge. You say all men are God's children. I demand of you to prove that. I never read it in my Bible. I dare not say, Our Father which are in heaven, till I am regenerated. I cannot rejoice in the fatherhood of God towards me, till I know that I am one with Him and a joint heir with Christ. I dare not claim the fatherhood of God as an unregenerated man." It is not father and child, for the child has a claim upon its father. But it is king and subject, and not even so high a relation as that, for there is a claim between subject and king. A creature, a sinful creature, can have no claim upon God, for that would be to make salvation of works and not of grace. But people talk of divine grace sometimes as if it were something they could use and not as an influence having power over them. Men cannot take the grace of God and employ it in turning themselves from darkness to light. The light does not come to the darkness and say, Use me, but the light comes and drives the darkness away. Life does not come to the dead man and say, Use me and be restored to life, but it comes with a power of its own and restores to life. The spiritual influence does not come to the dry bones and say, Use this power and clothe yourselves with flesh, but it comes and clothes them with flesh and the work is done. Grace is a thing which comes and exercises an influence on us. The sovereign will of God alone creates us heirs of grace, born in the image of His Son, a new created race. And we say to all of you who gnash your teeth at this doctrine, whether you know it or not, you have a vast deal of enmity towards God in your hearts. For until you can be brought to know this doctrine, there is something which you have not yet discovered which makes you opposed to the idea of God absolute, God unbounded, God unfettered, God unchanging, and God having a free will, which you are so fond of proving that the creature possesses. I am persuaded that the sovereignty of God must be held by us if we would be in a healthy state of mind. Salvation is of the Lord alone. Then give all the glory to his holy name to whom all glory belongs. Praise God for his sovereignty in salvation. I hope that this answer to the question, why is it that many believers will be happy to accept God's sovereignty, except in matters of salvation, has been a help and a blessing to you. It was provided during the Sunday morning sermon preached on the 4th of May, 1856, titled, Divine Sovereignty. A wonderful new edition of Charles Spurgeon's All of Grace has just been released as an audio classic and worship experience, Its standout feature is that it has been interwoven with the instrumental versions of well-loved hymns so as to turn your passive listening into active worship. Now, you can download a copy of All of Grace, an audio classic and worship experience, for free on Audible by signing up to their 30-day trial membership. Or if you are already a member, why not use one of your credits for what will be a truly blessed listening and worship experience. Of course, if you don't want to join Audible, you can buy a copy from Audible as well. Just a word of warning that there are a few versions of All of Grace on Audible. You want to be looking for All of Grace, and audio classic and worship experience. I trust you have been blessed by the Ask Spurgeon podcast today. Why not subscribe to it? Also, please feel free to contact me about this or any other episode by emailing me at dave at askspurgeon.com. It's been great having you with us today. Do join us again for the next episode of Ask Spurgeon, where once again we will seek answers to some faith-building questions as together we journey through life and on our way to glory. Until next time, God bless you.